Hi guys and welcome to the Research Zone podcast, the podcast where we aim to make sense of youth mental health research. Each week we will talk to a different researcher to learn about their research project, discussing the why, what, where, when and how of their research and most importantly how this can benefit us as young people. All the relevant links will be in the show notes so please do check them out if you're interested in today's topic. Without further ado, let's meet today's guest. Hi guys, I'm Lizzie and welcome to another episode of the Research Zone podcast. Today I'm joined by the lovely Abby again to discuss another one of her great projects. So Abby, would you like to introduce yourself and what you're going to be talking about today? Thanks Lizzie. Yeah, hi everyone. So I'm Abby Russell. I work at the University of Exeter where I'm a senior lecturer in the medical school. Um, But most of my time I do research and that research is around children and young people's mental health. Um, I work in different topics. So if you listen to these podcasts, you might have heard me talking about ADHD. Um, But today we're going to talk about some work that I've been involved in around secondary schools and how staff in secondary schools deal and respond to young people who self-harm. Brilliant. So would you like to give us a little summary of this project you did around self-harm? Yeah, so I guess it's important to say at the start that self-harm is quite a difficult topic to talk about sometimes. And I know that some people listening to this might know someone who self-harms or be affected by it. And if that does apply to you, the first thing I would say is do reach out and talk to people and get support. Um, What we're going to talk about today doesn't really go into any specific detail because we don't want it to have any negative impacts on people. So I'm going to talk about... um, basically teachers' perceptions on what schools say they are doing. So what we did in this study, uh, this was maybe four or five years ago now, but between us in the southwest of England and some researchers at Cardiff, we decided it would be really useful to see what schools are doing um, around trying to prevent young people from self-harming, but also how they respond to young people and what kind of activities they think are important. So we did that in two ways. We did a survey where we sent out a questionnaire to, I think, about 150 secondary schools. And what we did was we asked the school to decide who's the best member of staff to fill in this questionnaire, who knows most about about what we do as a school on this topic. So we did the survey and that was very much like you guys have probably done similar things where you get questions and you tick boxes to say what you are doing or what you aren't doing. And sometimes you get a chance to explain a bit more about uh, why you've given a certain answer. So that was the first part. And then in the second part, what we did was we took the responses from those schools and we kind of grouped them into two, two groups. So we had schools that said they didn't do much in this area and schools that said that they do a lot in this area. And from each of those groups, we got four schools to take part in a focus group. So focus group is a like term that means different things to different people. In the research I do, focus groups are really a chance for a group of people to share their thoughts and experiences about something. So a bit like Lizzie and I recording this podcast, I have a list of questions that I take to my focus group and I say to people, okay, this is what I want to talk about. And I have some specific questions, but I also want you to tell me what comes to mind as well. So people are answering what we're interested in knowing, but we're also giving people the opportunity to tell us whatever it is that's on their mind about that topic as well. So yeah, so we did our survey, 
And then we did focus groups with eight schools. And just to be clear, those focus groups just involved staff members at schools. So that was teachers, people like SENCOs or pastoral staff. Um, We had a few PE teachers and teaching assistants as well. And we also had people like uh, the school nurse, where some schools had nurses, and deputy head teachers or head teachers as well. Brilliant. That sounds like such a wide array of school staff that you had. Just to backtrack a bit, why did you choose to research self-harm and specifically teachers' attitudes towards self-harm? So self-harm is a really important thing. It's a problem that a lot of young people come across either through supporting a friend or something that they might have tried themselves. But historically, it hasn't really been talked about very much or acknowledged very much. And that is in spite of the fact that we know that roughly one in four young people will at some point self-harm. So it's something that's happening that's really common for young people, but adults are very reluctant and very scared to talk about it because we don't want to encourage anyone to do that. The way that we view self-harm in research is that it's kind of not the best coping mechanism in response to distressing or upsetting thoughts. So what we want to do is find ways that we can give young people better coping mechanisms without them feeling the need to turn to self-harm. And we think probably the best way to do that is to go through schools because most young people are at school and we know that you know you chat loads to your mates at school it's a place where you have lots of social interactions and these issues come up a lot so we thought okay in an ideal world to reduce that number from one in four young people to get to the point where there are less people self-harming then we want to work with schools but we don't know what schools think about this as a problem yet So there's not a lot of research that actually talks about what schools know in this area and what school staff do, whether they've got training specifically about this or not. So we really wanted to find out what was the situation in the UK at the moment, really. Definitely. It sounds really important. Like when I think back to being at school, like I spent the majority of my time at school. So really having support at school is such like a protective factor for young people, isn't it? I think as well that, you know, sometimes you might have problems at home that are really difficult to talk about at home. And school is a different place where you can talk to other people that you know. And, you know, hopefully most people have fairly good relationships with at least one member of staff at school where they feel that they could go to for help. So we think school is a really good place to kind of do this kind of work. Definitely. I totally agree. Um, So let's talk a bit about designing the research. So you mentioned that you did the questionnaires and the focus group. So what kind of questions were you asking and how did you decide who to do it with? Yeah, so this was quite a big project that actually involved probably about 12 different researchers at different points. So to start with, lots of researchers got together and thought, okay, what do we already know about and what is it we really want to know from schools at the moment? And then what's the best way to find that out? So what we wanted to know was what are schools doing to prevent potential self-harm? And what do they do to intervene if they find out that a young person is self-harming? So we designed the survey questions around that. And the reason we did it as a survey to start with is because we wanted to hear from a lot of schools. And the focus groups I've talked about are great, but it's really difficult and quite intensive to go and do that in 100 schools, whereas it's much easier to post out a survey to 100 schools. So the survey part was really about getting a real broad view of what different schools are doing at the moment. 
What we asked to start with was who in the school, which members of school staff deal with self-harm. We talked about what kind of training the school does for their staff, but also whether or not they train students or provide any training for students around self-harm. We asked them importantly about what they thought the obstacles were to preventing or intervening with self-harm at their school and what they thought weren't obstacles. So in research speak, we often call these barriers and facilitators because barriers are like a blockage in the way of a school doing prevention work. And facilitators are things that kind of ease that path. So we asked them about that. Brilliant. Um, So what did you find after doing these focus groups and the surveys? So I'll talk about the survey first. So What we found was that most schools said that their school counsellor was the most useful person that they felt could kind of help students and manage students. Although lots of schools also said that child and adolescent mental health services were very useful and pastoral staff. When we asked schools about who deals with self-harm at the moment, most of them said that the pastoral teams are most involved. So when I'm talking about pastoral, I mean school staff who aren't just teachers. So the kind of people you find in school that help you with your well-being, sometimes they're called safeguarding staff as well. And they're people that you can go to if you've got a problem that's not just about your maths lesson, for example. So that might be someone like a Senko. It might be a school nurse. It might be a counsellor, an educational psychologist. There's lots of different people that fall into this kind of pastoral staff role. And the other people that, that you don't often think about necessarily are the kind of school admin team so the people who man the reception desk the lunchtime supervisors all of those people who aren't directly involved in teaching but who you do see a lot and spend a lot of time with when you're at school so that was about who deals with self-harm about half of our schools that we surveyed said that they trained their staff specifically in managing or dealing with self-harm About a quarter of schools overall, maybe slightly less, a third said that that training was mandatory, so all staff had to do it. Whereas two thirds of those schools said that was voluntary training. So if the staff had time or were willing, or perhaps only one or two people from the school staff did the training and then passed that on to others they worked with. Then we asked about what what are these obstacles to, to doing more about prevention and intervention? And that was kind of different to the to the training question. So when we asked people about training, they said, oh, yes, we train our staff. Then when we asked about what prevents you from doing more, they said, oh, we don't have adequate training. So actually, 81 percent of schools said that staff training being inadequate was a barrier. And what I think that means is that schools are providing training generally for staff around mental health and coping skills, but they're perhaps not training them specifically around responding to self-harm. Um, and that came up more in the focus groups as well. Another major problem and a major barrier is that school staff are really reluctant to talk about self-harm because they don't want to give anyone the idea that it might be a good idea. And as I said a minute ago, You know, we definitely do not endorse that self-harm is a good idea, but we do recognise that it's something young people do and it's a method that you use to cope with distressing feelings. So I think because school staff have a lack of training and a lack of confidence, 
they're really worried about talking openly about self-harm in case someone's never heard of it before and thinks, oh, I should try that. And that fear actually stops them from doing anything sometimes in the, in the way of preventing it. So yes, and then there were a couple more barriers as well. So one of them was just not having enough time in the school day and enough time within the school curriculum to actually deliver mental health awareness training. And I guess because this is a podcast for young people, you guys probably know how much learning you do at school and how much academics you do. Um, and actually finding the time to do these other activities that aren't specifically about a subject or an exam, schools can find really difficult. And then the other thing that they struggled with was the lack of resources. Um, so just not having the training, the staff, the money and the time combined just makes it to this point where they're unfortunately not doing very much at all. Those are the surveys. And then the focus groups were quite different. So. In the focus groups, like I said earlier, we picked four schools who said they weren't doing very much and four schools who said they were doing a lot. But then when we did the focus groups, there didn't really seem to be many differences between them. And I think what it was was that schools that say they are doing a lot are doing a lot to promote good mental health generally. So they're helping young people to learn good coping strategies. They're encouraging young people to talk to members of staff if they've got problems. They're specifically signposting people towards safeguarding staff. So most schools, I think, have a notice board where they have photos of the key people you can go to if you you need to talk about something. Some schools said that they have those members of staff wear like a different coloured lanyard or they have a different ID badge. So you see someone with a yellow lanyard and you know, oh, I can talk to them about some things that are concerning me that aren't just about school. So schools felt like they know how to respond to self-harm. They do it not infrequently but normally they treat it as a safeguarding issue so if a student tells a member of staff that they've self-harmed then that member of staff would go to a safeguarding lead and say okay this scenario has happened could I have some advice on how I should best support that student. I think what we found in schools was that the level of confidence that different schools had in their ability to do that well was quite different so some schools there was one in particular that was very, very kind of progressive with what they did. They had open conversations with students and they had a really clear response if they found out about someone self-harming. Another thing that they talked about in the focus groups was that it's not always the person who is self-harming that comes to them for help. Quite often it's a friend of that person. So it's much easier to talk to your friends about things that bother you than it is to talk to an adult who you don't necessarily trust or know. So lots of schools say that actually the students that come to talk to the staff are coming to talk to them on behalf of a friend. And schools found it quite difficult then to know, should they go straight to the young person who is self-harming or should they support their friend to support them? And I think because it's such a dangerous and difficult topic, the feeling was we should go straight to the young person who's self-harming and work with them as best we can. But then what support do we also need to give their friend? So that was an important thing to consider. There's two other things that came up in the focus groups to talk about. One is that schools were much more comfortable doing activities that were around promoting good mental health than talking about bad mental health. Schools were generally really willing to do anything that was kind of about promoting good coping strategies, 
promoting resilience, talking about how to stay well and healthy and how to get help if you're not, but less enthusiastic, should we say, about running specific sessions on, for example, anxiety or depression or self-harm. So that tells us that if we want schools to do stuff about self-harm, then what they want to do is prevention and they want to do it without really explicitly mentioning self-harm if possible. And there are some programs out there that do that. So the Samaritans, who are a really good charity to go to if this topic is relevant to you, they have a program that they deliver in schools about emotional awareness and coping skills, for example. And the final thing that came up in the focus groups was the role that social media can play. And I think we actually had a conversation today in our research group about what we think about social media and mental health, because there's lots of evidence that kind of correlates social media and mental health, but no strong evidence that social media can cause poor mental health. Obviously, when you're working in a school and when you're at school, social media is another part of your social life that perhaps your family don't see and your teachers don't see. But schools do keep tabs on these kind of things. And schools would tell us about instances where they'd seen something on a student's social media page or they were worried about the way in which the student was using social media. And I think it's important to know that social media can be used in different ways and it can be used to help and to find help and to find support as well as in ways that are perhaps less useful and less positive. So I think schools were really worried that they just didn't know how it was being used. So I think we need a lot more research in that area as well. Wow, that's a lot of finding across a lot of different areas. And I think what just listening to that, it kind of highlights that it's not clear cut, like one self-harm policy for every school, for every pupil, it's not going to work. An individualistic approach is kind of needed. Is that something that you think came out through that? Yeah, absolutely. And it's something we've started working on more, actually, because we found that schools are using their safeguarding policy to know how to manage self-harm. And safeguarding is about preventing harm, so it does make sense, but it's also about informing people when there's a risk of harm. And I think the issue is, if you're a young person who self-harms, you don't necessarily want your parents to find out, so you hide it, right? And what schools generally do at the moment, and this isn't all schools by any means, but lots of schools do want to inform parents if a young person is self-harming. But what they would do is they would speak to the young person first. So no school is going to go behind your back and call your parents. They should talk to you about it first. But they did feel that that was the best way they thought they could support the young person. Whereas I think what we've realised is that especially if if you have a really difficult home life, that's not necessarily always helpful or always appropriate. So at the moment, we're trying to develop a tool so that schools can design their own policy specifically around how they respond to self-harm and how they try and prevent self-harm. And that's going to be a flexible thing. So each school can put in their own specific needs and their own specific ideas, but it gives them a framework to suggest that we do need policies in this area. I know a researcher at Cambridge as well who has just done some research talking to young people about how they feel about this. So teenagers and what teenagers were saying was kind of similar to what school staff have been saying, but also very much that they think that their school should have a self-harm policy 
and that they would find it useful as young people to know what that policy was for their school. So I think it's really important as well to keep talking to young people about how that might be useful for them. Because me as an adult, I think, what teenager is going to read a policy? I don't even want to read policies. But actually what the young people were saying was, we want to know what our school would do if we said this. To give them, I guess, some reassurance and a sense of security that the school really did want what was best for them. Definitely. And I think transparency is so important. Like I think when you're younger, I remember when I was a teenager, I was terrified of my parents finding out anything at school. So I think young people do want to be informed. I think that there's this misconception that they don't really know or they don't really care. And sure, some of them don't, but I think the majority of young people do want to know what's going to happen with their information and they do want to know about these kind of policies. I think that's true. And I think the thing about talking to parents as well is sometimes it's a lot easier if you have a member of of staff from your school with you to have those difficult conversations like I know from my personal experience like being bullied at school for example I couldn't really tell my parents that but then when my teacher said oh shall I call them and you can be on the phone as well and we'll tell them together that was much easier for me and I think as a young person you should think about who can help me talk to other people about this as well as talking yourself. Definitely. I think it's important to remember that like most school staff are there to help you. Like they're there, they're there because they've got your best interests at heart. But I think that's easy to forget sometimes, especially around secretive behaviours like self-harming. Yeah, absolutely. And I think most school staff are really well intentioned and really want to help young people, but they also don't necessarily want to intrude into your private thoughts. So sometimes it takes the young person actually coming forward and saying something for the teacher to know that it's okay for them to talk about it. Definitely. So my final question is, where can people get involved and find out more about your project or this kind of area of research? Yeah, so... This is kind of an area of research where there still isn't that much out there. So you can look for research on kind of preventing suicide in young people. And there's um, a big study across Europe, which is called the SAIL study, but it's spelt S-E-Y-L-E. And I think it's about saving and empowering young people's lives, some sort of acronym around that. You can look at the University of Exeter have a children and young people's mental health research group called CHIME, which I'm part of. And you can look at our CHIME website to see this kind of work and the reports from this study. And then moving forwards, I'm working on this with some people who are part of the children's mental health and resilience team at the University of Cambridge. So there's several people that work in that CHARM team in Cambridge who are working on this area as well. And anyone who does want to, you know, talk in more detail about it or know exactly where to find more information can contact me and I'll point you in the right direction too. Brilliant. Thank you so much, Abby. I'll put all those links in the show notes so people can easily click on them. Brilliant. Thanks, Lizzie. Thank you so much for listening. We really hope you got something from today's conversation and some nuggets of wisdom you can utilise to manage your own mental health. This is a podcast made by young people for young people. So if you liked it, then please do follow us on socials and let us know about any future topics you would like to see. We hope you have a wonderful week and most importantly, take care of yourself.